the La Crosse Public Library Archives presents Dark Lacrosse Stories, a series in collaboration with the La Crosse Tribune. Dark Lacrosse is a suite of programs that feature the seedier side of lacrosse history and also include a downtown walking tour, a trolley tour, and an annual stage production with new content each year. December 31st, 1919. Lacrosse celebrated its last ringing of the new year before the beginning of Prohibition. That night, members of Lacrosse's elite raised glasses of champagne while attending the elegant Sylvester Ball at Pioneer Hall, located at the current site of Fire Station No. 1 on the corner of 5th and Market. Pioneer Hall had long been named Germania Hall before anti-German sentiment swept through the country during the First World War. The formal Sylvester Ball itself had been canceled for two years prior due to the great conflict with Germany. Gentlemen dressed in tuxedos twirled elegant ladies donned in evening gowns and extravagant jewelry. They must have felt grateful that the time of war was over, not knowing another conflict was about to begin. This war would be waged within our own borders and at stake was our country's morality. For the next decade, our country would struggle with lawlessness, permissive and otherwise, and the meaning of freedom. city welcomed the new year the old-fashioned way with a cup that cheers. Welcomed the olden days before Uncle Sam clamped the lid on the country. Treasured stocks were depleted last night, and with the fortitude of camels, our community started their long journey across the desert today. Not satisfied, but almost reconciled to their lot after a final blow-off party in welcome to little old 1920. I wrote that. I was a reporter for the La Crosse Tribune, and I tell you, I loved that profession. I wanted to know everything that was going on. I'm instinctually nosy, I guess. Always have been. 
During Prohibition and lacrosse, I knew everything, official or not. I was there for the whole thing. And to be honest, when I look back at that time in our city's history, I can't determine if Prohibition was when the party ended or started. Lacrosse was second to Milwaukee in beer production in the state. We depended on beer. Needless to say, many in lacrosse were poised to detest a ban on malt beverages. G. Hyland and other brewers tried unsuccessfully to convince the public that the beer should not be controlled because it was a drink of moderation, unlike whiskey, which was the true drink of drunkenness. There was a reason for Heilman to hope when the Wisconsin State Senate approved a 2.5% beer, meaning they could brew beer that would contain less than 2.5% alcohol. It was a small victory and a short-lived one. Not long after, the federal government set enforcement for beverages with content no higher than 0.05%. On that day, I wrote this. Lacrosse is dry, bone dry. That's the briefest way to state the fact. A few of the city's hundred-odd bars are open today, but they are confining their activity to the sale of soft drinks. Most of the saloons are closed tight. Barleycorn entered the tomb at 12 o'clock last night. Clocks, which had always been five or ten minutes fast in lacrosse bar rooms, were moved up to the second. And when the hands met, lacrosse held up its glass of liquor and drank one long, large, and solemn drink. You see, the passing of the Volstead Act, making the production and distribution of alcohol illegal, sparked the violent operations of organized crime syndicates. Business for illegal liquor was booming. In Chicago, Mafia boss Al Capone made an estimated $60 million in alcohol sales in 1927. Speakeasies, so named because patrons had to whisper a code word or name through a locked door in order to be allowed in, sprang up across the country. There's an estimated 30,000 speakeasies in New York City alone. Lacrosse housed its fair share as well. Police officers made little attempt to uncover speakeasies, home brewers, or hidden small distilleries and basements. They focused their overworked force on local, large-scale moonshine operations. One of those operations was orchestrated by Frank Kleinerts, the owner of the railway restaurant on Lacrosse's north side and the Union Hotel in Bangor. Kleinerts was arguably one of the biggest bootleggers in the region. His partner in crime was a hulking 300-pound Norwegian named Big Ole Johnson. Johnson and his gang would drive sometimes 100 miles one way on rough back roads to pick up huge parcels of 180-proof whiskey. Court bottles were stored behind baseboards and door jam casings and sold behind the bar at the Union Hotel. Despite being hauled into court and fined heavily, Kleinerts continued to supply the area with the illicit concoction while also dealing in illegal slot machines. He had quite an operation. Dear friend.
During Prohibition, many local companies went out of business, while others became rich. In 1924, the automotive foundry company in La Crosse received a huge contract from the United States government, estimated to be around $400,000. You see, rum runners, boats transporting illegal liquor, they ran all up and down the Atlantic and Pacific coasts. Great Lakes, too. Smugglers had boats so fast they could run circles around the Coast Guard. Many people didn't want to drink the foul-tasting and dangerous locally-made industrial alcohol, which was being doctored in order to pass off for the real thing. People, especially the wealthy, wanted the real thing, and they wanted it right off the boat. Premium product came at a premium price, and bootleggers were making a fortune. The automotive foundry of La Crosse became rich because they built parts for high-powered engines, which were being installed in the newly designed six-bitter patrol boats for the U.S. Coast Guard. Those boats could catch anything. The party for the rum runners was over, and many, many shipments were dumped into the drink in order to avoid arrest. By the late 1920s, the violence that flared between rival gangs had shocked the nation. Cities became war zones. Prohibition had created a black market that competed with the formal economy, which came under a great deal of pressure once the Great Depression hit. Spectacularly failing at enforcing sobriety and costing billions, Prohibition rapidly lost public support in the early 1930s. In 1933, President Franklin Roosevelt signed an amendment to the Volstead Act, allowing the manufacture and sale of 3.2% beer and light wine. Upon signing, he remarked, I think this would be a good time for a beer. The signing of the 21st Amendment, the 18th Amendment was repealed on December 5th, 1933. I would go on to write, Burial of Old Man Prohibition and the restoration of John Barleycorn to the throne as King of Bubbling Spirits was quietly observed in the city Tuesday night. There was no hilarity, no excitement, and little intoxication. The cross took the repeal vote as a matter of course, and it was no reason for a celebration. Well, there may have been a reason, if one cared to find one. There wasn't enough bonded liquor in the city Tuesday night to stage much of a celebration, if one had been planned. At the Central Police Station, two intoxicated persons were locked up. The photos of four prominent breweries at the beginning of this piece hopefully piqued your interest to learn more about the brewing industry in La Crosse. While it would be impossible to do the history of brewing in La Crosse justice in just a few minutes, we would like to share a brief overview of the four breweries. Franz Bartle Brewing Company, incorporated in 1904 on the site pictured at 12th and La Crosse Streets, though there were other brewing operations on the site going back to the late 1850s. They survived Prohibition by making cereal beverages and bottling soda drinks, but did not return to brewing beer after Prohibition. In the mid-1950s, West Avenue was extended north to connect to Lang Drive, which required that some of the buildings on their site be torn down. The building pictured was torn down in 1971. John Gund, a German immigrant, started his first brewing business in La Crosse at Front and Division in 1854. After an early partnership with Gottlieb Heilemann, the John Gund Brewing Company was organized and incorporated in 1880. By the end of the 19th century, Gund products were being shipped all over the Midwest. A large fire in 1897 instigated the building of a new state-of-the-art plant completed in 1898. Gund's Peerless Beer became internationally famous, winning medals at the 1900 World's Fair in Paris, 
and the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis. By 1910, the Gunn Brewery employed 450 people. However, less than 10 years later, Prohibition effectively shut down the John Gunn Brewing Company for good. The legacy of this plant lives on with the Gunn Brewery loft apartments just south of the Gunnerson Health System complex. Founded by brothers Charles and John Mitchell, the C&J Mitchell Brewing Company began in 1857 on South 3rd Street and incorporated under that name in 1882. In 1907, they moved their plant to just north of the current city brewery complex where they spread out on what is now the land occupied by Toyota of La Crosse. Their Elfenbrau beer was well known throughout the United States. They survived Prohibition by changing their name to La Crosse Refining Company and manufacturing malt and malt syrup. With the repeal of Prohibition in 1933, they began brewing beer again and bought the Peerless trademark and label from the John Gunn Brewing Company. Operations shuttered in 1965, and the only remaining building is the nondescript bottling house on the northeast corner of 2nd and Division Streets. Currently used by Dahl Automotive for storage, the building is in the early stages of planned renovation. The G. Heilman Brewing Company is probably the most well-known of the many breweries in La Crosse history. Its plant is still in operation on South 3rd Street at City Brewery, which, according to their website, brews over 40 different recipes for their contract brewing customers. Gottlieb Heilemann formed a partnership with John Gund in 1858 and opened City Brewery. A falling out in 1872 led to Gund opening his own brewery, and Heilemann changed the name to G. Heilemann City Brewery. After his death in 1878, his wife Johanna took over leadership and is recognized as one of the first female CEOs of a major company in the United States. They would incorporate as the G. Heilemann Brewing Company in 1890. Surviving Prohibition in better shape than most breweries, they continued to expand. Under the leadership of Roy Cum and Russell Cleary, beginning in the 1960s, the G. Heilemann Brewing Company became one of the largest companies in La Crosse. By 1983, the G. Heilemann Brewing Company was the fourth largest brewer in the United States, with annual sales exceeding $1.3 billion, and at its peak employed more than 1,700 people in La Crosse alone. However, in the mid-1990s, after a series of buyouts and failed business ventures, G. Heilemann Brewing Company ceased to exist. Its legacy lives on today in the old-style brand and LaCroix sparkling water. This is really only scratching the surface of the brewing industry in La Crosse and leaves out many other breweries, so I encourage everyone to stop into the archives at the La Crosse Public Library on Main Street if you would like to learn more. Thanks for listening. <music>